This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome Christine and welcome everyone to another edition from Wireless Books brought to you from the brand new studios of Otago Access Radio or Otago Access Media and we are recording on and for the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute Dunedin's golden oldest institution. Hello, Beth. Yes, it's very exciting to be in here. Now, I thought I'd start with something from the newspaper. Normally, I read um, interesting stories, or things that I think are interesting from 100 years ago, but this is actually from earlier in the week, and it made me laugh, so I thought I'd just share it with you. Car crash blamed on waving ghost. The ghostly appearance of a waving pedestrian spooked an alleged drink driver so much that an Eden man crashed his car. The police were called to dinner at Robin Street on Waverley at half past four in the morning on Sunday after a 14-year-old man reversed his car into a ditch and became stuck. The man told police he saw what he believed to be a ghost waving at him from the roadside. As a result, he stopped his car and put it into reverse to escape and got stuck in a ditch. The ghost turned out to be a pedestrian waving the driver down for a ride, the police said. <laughs> now, he, look, he dodged a, he dodged a bullet then, that, that I th- pedestrian. I think that story really tells you why you don't want to drink drive because it just makes you really silly. So anyway, shall we, shall we do some new books, new oh, and old books? I thought you'd never ask. Well, the very first one I've got on the top of my pile is Why Didn't They Ask Evans by Agatha Christie? And for years and years, in my mind, I've been going, why don't they ask Evans? But it's why didn't they ask Evans? And it's, um, yes, uh, a young man out, out golfing, so they see a body that's fallen down a cliff and they rush rush down to help. And it's the, the man is still alive, but only just. And he's golfing with a man who actually is a doctor and the golfer, the, the doctor rushes off to get help and the young man stays behind. And um, just before, just after the other guys left, the, the, the man who's injured opens his eyes and says, why didn't they ask Evans? And that sort of sparks off this, the young man starting an investigation with an old childhood friend. And yeah, it's one of the Agatha Christie classics. Uh, yes, I've never read this, but I've seen several screen adaptations, mm. but with Miss Marple in it. But I believe well, Miss Marple isn't in it. No, it's one of those ones with none of, um, n- neither of the detectives on it. So I shall enjoy reading the original. Now I've got the latest Vanda Simon book. Um, expectant. Now, Van de Simon, of course, is the leading writer who writes about Detective Sam Shepard, who, uh, a female detective, and her trials of solving crimes in Dunedin. And this one is starts with the shocking murder of a pregnant woman, and it's sort of a personal thing for Sam because she actually is pregnant herself. And as she starts to investigate, um. Is she in more and more danger? So Vanda's actually had a, a sort of a, a gap here. So she's 
not quite ten years, but you know, she hasn't written. She didn't write a book for quite a while, and this, she's come back. She's come back with a bang. Come back it, with a vengeance. Yes. I love Fanta Simon. Mm. I'm going to take that one. And with great expectations, I'm going to sit down to read Expectant. Did you see what I did there? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I expected applause. I did laugh. <laughs> Just don't push it. Yeah, now, quite right. Now, I've got the latest Martin Cruz Smith, Independent Square. And of course, he is most famous for Gorgie Park and his detective. Uh, well,. I don't really know how you pronounce that guy's name. Oh, Akadi Renko. Yeah, let's just call him Renko because I can actually pronounce Renko. And so he's he's had very, he's done more than just Gorgie Park with um, Renko as as a protagonist. And so Renko has been he was born as part of the upper echelon of Russian society. He was um, his members. His parents were good, upstanding members of the Communist Party, but he himself has um, become this uh, this unusual thing—a detective who wants to know the truth, not just what's suitable according to the party's mm. lights. And so he he's got more and more um, sidelined, and now he's confined to a desk job, which he he hates, as he he says, um, "What's an, uh, an investigator who doesn't investigate?" And um, so anyway, he's. He gets a job that comes from outside because there's a new um, a rebellion is bubbling in the country and this Libitvik uh, who has start, has started a forum and he's wanting to change the political situation and a young girl who Katrina who's a start supporter of him goes missing and Rinko is asked by her father to find her and. So there you go. Um, the investigator begins, and then a close friend of, of his Renko's son, Alex, is found dead, and he's also a member of the forum. And so, so this forum needs investigation, and um, it's but investigating it is a bit tricky because it's against mm. the state. So may I ask? Mm. Because I do remember Gorky Park, mm. but that was many years ago. So is this? An older book, or is it a long time? It's a long time. Ah, no, wonderful. Yep, great. So he's um, the Scorky Park in the Renko series, then Polar Star, Red Square, Havana Bay, Wolves Eat Dogs, Stalin's Ghost, Three Stations, Titania, and The Serbian Dilemma. So that's a lot of books he's written about. And the new one is Independent Square and very timely with what's going on in Ukraine, methinks. Yes, and it's um, received very good reviews. Mm. Now I'm a a little bit excited seeing this book Mm. that is being bared on the the pile. Yes, this is the latest Lisa Jewell and it's None of This is True and it's a story about a woman who who reluctantly starts a podcast with a woman that she knows as a fellow school mum. And she doesn't... She Alex is the woman who wrote, who does the podcast, and she's not very interested in Josie, but Josie sort of persuades her. And the more involved Alex gets in Josie's life, the more tricky things become. And she soon realises that Josie's been hiding some very dark secrets. But are they true secrets or, or not? And, you know, or is it 
none of this is true. Exactly. And um, yes, gloriously dark and blissfully engaging. Lisa Jewell, she is just so fantastic. I've loved all of her books, even the different genres she's written in. I've loved them all. In fact, if Lisa Jewell was to go back and just to write just a pure, um, you know, romantic book, I I would read it and I bet you I would still absolutely love it because she is a writer who just resonates with such a wide audience. It's just the way she writes, I think. She's just, you know, the gift of the gab. She's got the Mm. gift of the pen. Well, I don't think she actually could write just a straight romance because the interesting thing about her romantic novels is that quite often there's a mystery in them. Um, Usually people... Quite frequently in her earlier books, people couldn't quite remember their childhood correctly and they had to uncover, they always had to sort of Mm. unpick what had happened in their childhood Mm. to make them the way they were. And so, so yes, I don't think, you know, I don't think she actually ever wrote a straight out romance. But yeah, she is a great writer. I've, I've. I liked her romances and I I like her crimes as well. Hey, since we're in the uh, new studio and I've found out what hotkeys actually are, which I've been using all the time but didn't realise what they were called, should I um, hit a hotkey for a sting? Just no. give you a wee break? No, let's keep going because, um, yeah, we've got a lot to go through, sorry. Um, now, I've got this um, a Scandinavian um, nor and Ragnar jo- jo- Johansson has written co-written a book with Katrin Jacobs-Dor, daughter, and I think it, it's, I think it is like Jacob's daughter. I'm, I'm mispronouncing it, but she actually is the Prime Minister of Sweden. So he's co-written a book with, um, yes, I'm sorry, the pri- she's the Prime Minister of Iceland. Oh yeah, was she the one who? Um got in trouble for partying but she wasn't partying really it's just some some nasty yeah, yeah, yeah. people i don't know that it is but um and he actually he's an interesting guy cuz he he's been writing um bestseller um crimes but he also works as an investment banker and teaches copyright law at um Reykjavik, um university and as a teenager, he used to um, translate Agatha Christie um, novels into Icelandic, Ooh. which is a sort of an interesting hobby to have. And him and the Prime Minister have been friends for a long time, and she is also loves um, Icelandic crime writing. And um, they they decided to they were on the same jury for an award for best crime fiction in Ireland in Iceland at least, and they decided to to do this book together and it sort of happened when the pandemic was happening. I think it's a bit, in a way it's a bit odd. I mean, imagine if Jacinta Ardern had been um, writing, co-writing a book with Van de Simon about some murder in, in Dunedin you, and then they released it. I think you would think that a bit odd. So if I was in, in Iceland, I would be, I don't know if I'd be that impressed that my Prime Minister had been writing novels on the side. Anyway, that's anyway, me. Right. I'm not allowed to press a hotkey, so I'm not even not going to disagree with you at all. Well, we started we started the um, interaction with you being in the bad mood, and now you now you've got me in the bad mood. And it's 
starts it's two time periods um Iceland in 1956 and a 15-year-old girl who's been um spending the summer working for a, a couple on a small island she um disappears without a trace and it becomes the Iceland's greatest unsolved case what happened to the young girl and 30 years later in August 1986 um the city of Reykjavik is celebrating its 200th anniversary and the journalist starts his own investigation into the girl's case. And as he draws closer to discovering the secret, it becomes clearer that her disappearance is a mystery that someone will stop at nothing to keep buried. Do you know what? I mean, it, the precis sounds absolutely intriguing, but and I know it won't be anything like it, but in a way, just that description, the synopsis, synopsis <laughs> reminded me of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Oh yeah, it is a little bit that way, isn't it? Mm. But I guess, I, I guess it's just those sort of, they they wanted to do a crime that had been become notorious, mm. and and they also um, they were teenagers um, when um, the twentieth anniversary of the city happened, and they had both had fond memories of it, mm. as they have a little short after chapter where they talk about their inspirations. Now, I've got um, a Robert Goodard book, and it's the sec- second one about the Japanese um, invest uh, private detective um, Wada, W-A-D-A. Yep, that sounds good. Yeah, and it's called The Fine Art of Uncanny Prediction. And Robert Goodard, has, he's written so many books, and the first one was called The Fine Art of Invisible Detection. And... So this is a woman who worked for a detective and he died suddenly and she's, she she never really thought of herself as a detective but she's discovered that she actually has a talent for it. And so she's, but she's also being very careful because her boss died in mysterious circumstances and she doesn't want the same thing to happen to her. No. So she chooses her cases very carefully and so she gets into this case where a businessman wants to track down his estranged son. And it seems straightforward enough, so she takes it on. But um, suddenly um, she turns, finds herself pulled into a labyrinthine conspiracy, which links to the 27-year-old investigation by her late employer and to the chaos and trauma of the dying days of the Second World War. And it actually opens with the off um, aftermath of the dropping of the bombs in um, Nakasawa oh, and oh. yeah Hiroshima, so there there you go and um, yeah, so it's another tour de force from the cunning mind of master storyteller Robert Goodhart, and like I say, Robert Goodhart has written a whole heap of books. His first book was published in his early twenties and it was a bestseller, and he's just been keeping going since then. So here. Truly talented. Mm. And my final book is Lady Macbethed <laughs> by Isabel Schuller. And this is actually the story of how Lady Macbeth became Lady Macbeth. So it's oh. so it has a lot of the people in the play, but not really. And it's really um it starts off with um the daughter of an ousted king and descendant of ancient druids as a child is prophesied that one day, this is another name I can't pronounce, Grouch will be Queen of Alba, which is um, the old name for Scotland. And she's betrothed to Duncan, the heir elect, and it seems to confirm the prophecy. 
So when she leaves her home and her family and travels to the royal seat at Scone to embrace her new position, but nothing is as she anticipates. Um, Duncan's court is filled with sly words, unfriendly faces. And um, as her coronation approaches, a deadly turn of events forces her to flee. And she finds herself alone, vulnerable, and at the mercy of an old enemy. Her hope of becoming queen seems lost. And anyway, she takes off with her close, her old family friend, old childhood friendly, Macbethed. And so, and how they put her in her rightful place or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's got very good reviews uh, and one person's actually already read it because they insisted that I buy it and they loved it. So, yes, very... And actually a lot of it is true. There's a, an afterward by the writer um, sets out all the things that she found out and how, how much truth there is, there is in the story. Because, of course, um, Shakespeare wrote Macbeth about historical characters, but um, how much truth there was in his thing is pretty much open to debate. So, yeah, a sting, please, if if you want to hit that hot button. Oh, do you think we've got time? Yes, I've that would be lovely. I've which button to hit now. Oh, doing okay. that. Hang on, bear with. Oh, yeah, I've got it. Ready? Yes. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M dot org dot N-Z. Done. Okay, well, I've just trying to locate. Um, yes, sorry. Yeah. This is um, more from um, George V, Never a Dull Moment by Jane Ridley. And this is um, during the First World War, and um, and it's after um, Asquith was ousted as Prime Minister and Lloyd George took over. And he, Lloyd George saw the King on the 29th of March, 1915, and they had an interesting conversation about the drink question, which was the mm. Chancellor's current obsession. Lloyd George insisted that excess alcohol consumption was damaging the war effort by reducing the productivity of workers in armament factories. The next day, the king wrote to Lloyd George, offering to set an example by giving up alcohol himself and banning it in the royal household. Lloyd George promptly sent the letter to the Times, and the king was trapped. There was no going back. This morning we have all become teetotalists until the end of the war, wrote George on the 6th of April. I hate doing it, but hope it will do good. It didn't. <laughs> Few in public life followed his example. The public did not respond and the king came to feel that he'd been made a fool of. Lloyd George was no admirer of the monarch. I wonder what my little German friend has got to say to me, he remarked when summoned to the palace. The queen was forced to give up the small b- bottle of sparkling moussel that she drank for dinner each evening and sip premier, premier water instead. <laughs> for George, giving up wine was no hardship. He didn't miss it at all, wrote Mary, and feels less sleepy. According to, to the Duke of Windsor, previous um, the Prince of Wales, the king after dinner would leave his guests for five minutes and retire to his study to attend to a small matter of business, which was generally supposed to supposed to be consumption of a small glass of port. So um, there you go. That's a pretty um, nasty trick for old Lloyd George to be um, pulling on him, wasn't it? 
No, you're not. That's quite clever. Wow. And yeah, it would be actually dangerous working in um, armament ammunition factories when one's sporting a, a head, <laughs> a really bad hangover. I think that's quite sensible, actually. Well, the licensing rules that the people could drink basically all the time. Now, I've got another one from the First World War. Um, George's diary filled with troop inspections as Australian and Canadian soldiers poured into England and Kitchener's army trained two and a half million recruits destined for France. I mean, it's huge numbers, isn't it? Mm, yeah. It was the king's duty to maintain morale, visiting the men in their camps and inspecting them before their departure to France. First you're trained, then you're polished up, then the king comes and then you're off, was the saying. <laughs> Leaving London after breakfast and steaming at speed on a special train to Winchester or Salisbury Plain, George would review thousands of troops and return to Buckingham Palace in time for lunch. (laughs) On these trips, he was usually accompanied by Lord Lord Kitchener, a vast figure, six feet tall, inches tall, um, red-faced, heavy and fat. Lord Kitchener of Cadroon was George's rock. As Secretary of State for War, Kitchener was uncomfortable in the Cabinet and ministers found him ponderous and slow-witted. Many agreed with Margot Asquith, who quipped that he was more of a great poster than a great man. <laughs> Kitchener's only fault in George's eyes was that he talked so much that even George couldn't get a word in. It's <laughs> See, that's, um, I'm really trying to take out the, the funny things or the telling mm. things from the story, not so And much. I like how you're, um, actually I think it's very timely because we are coming up to another, yet another armistice day. Yeah, and of mm. course um, Kitchener was actually drowned when his, um, his ship um, sank at sea off, um, I think going around um, the Cape, around South Africa, because he'd, he'd gone to drum up support around the Empire. I'm just trying to, sorry, it takes me a while to, to, to bear with, I'm take yes. Now I've got something else that's something different. In January 1780, the news reached London that Captain Cook had been killed and eaten in Hawaii. The story of his death was met with morbid fascination by the general public, inspiring paintings, poems and even a ballet. This ballet was so violent that one of the dancers accidentally stabbed another during the scene of the attack. Yet it was also a fantastic success, touring the theatres of Europe and America. Soon aristocratic women were wearing dresses modelled on the natives who killed Cook, and interest in the explorer's death continued into the 19th century, until one witch noted that every museum in the world contained a copy of the club that killed him. I sort of wonder what um, what Europeans' idea of what um, Hawaiian women were wearing would have looked like. So I've I've never heard that before. No, I've certainly never heard it. And I'd never heard about this ballet. It's, it sounds quite bizarre. I know. I was going to say to you a ballet, but obviously it was uh, yeah, very very physical. And it must have been certainly before they had prop knives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake. Oh, no, that was very interesting. Yeah, I just, um, yeah. And, and I just want to acknowledge the great work you did for the um, uh, 
Heritage Week in Dunedin, opening up, opening up the Athenaeum and also that fab, fabulous interview uh, with Jesse on national radio as well. Yeah. Well, it was quite a surprise actually because to start with, I opened for the Heritage Week and I I'd come in a little bit early, so I'd be opened at the time I said mm-hmm. I was going to be there. And right on the dot, um, the ODT put their heads around the corner. Oh, yes, fantastic photo of you as well. Oh, yeah, it was just great. And everyone, well, a lot more people now would know of the Athenaeum. Mm. And just for $69, including GST a year, they can become a, a, a member. Uh, and we are between the Crack and the Thistle Cafe. We've been there for 150 years. Mm. Down the linoleum corridor to the right through those beautiful swing French doors to Christine's wonderful, smiling, welcoming countenance, holding books, just like she was in the ODT. Well, yes, now we have proof that I actually do <laughs> see <smile>. do <laughs> But anyway, on that note, everyone, hey, hey, Christine, happy reading. Yes, happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.